global crisis. Bible prophecy. Health and preparedness. You are just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing upon this time that we have together. We thank you for the radio airwaves. We thank you for an opportunity to have a program dedicated to understanding your word and understanding the signs of the times of our age. We do ask for discernment, for understanding, for clarity as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to 11th Hour Dispatch. I'm Scott Ritzema, your host, and we are continuing our series going through Bible prophecy and going through some important themes of the scriptures that when we do cover the news, we can say, okay, now we see the importance of what's going on in the world today in light of what the Bible teaches. In the previous session of the series on prophecy, we looked at Revelation 12, where it says, and there was war in heaven. Now, when John was seeing that in vision, in the book of Revelation, he was seeing history playing out before his eyes in vision. It says, Michael and his angels fought, and the devil and his angels, the dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, fought back with his angels. So Satan had spread rebellion in heaven, started a war in heaven. Isaiah 14 talks about this war. It says that he was trying to take the position of God in heaven. And that's what we covered already on the previous session on this, but there's so much more to this war that I wanted to get into in great detail on the broadcast today. Because this war is still going on all around us today. Satan wanted to take that position to receive worship, to to receive the allegiance of the people of this earth. He even tried to tempt Christ to bow down before him and worship him. But understanding this war does more than give us the understanding of the place that we play in this, in in, in actually giving our loyalty and worship and obedience to God. But this war that began in heaven so long ago actually, finally, definitively answers one of the most difficult questions that human beings have ever asked. You've got philosophers and theologians and great minds, and they, they try to understand and have failed, by and large, try to understand how a loving and all-powerful God could be presiding over all of the pain and suffering and evil of this earth. And you have to understand the origin of evil through the lenses of this war that began in heaven, which you read about in Revelation 12. Since there was a war in heaven, since there was a rebel, since Ezekiel 28 says that there was a perfect angel called Lucifer, he's talked about in Isaiah 14, and it says you were perfect in all your ways till iniquity was found in you. So we know that the origin of evil is not from God. He's not the inventor, the creator, the mastermind behind evil. Of course not. The Bible says in him is light and no darkness at all. So this was the idea of Lucifer. He was a free angel. He came up with this intentional, uh, this invention. 
And he said, I will ascend. I will be above the other stars. I will be above the clouds. And I will sit enthroned as the most high. That is where evil comes from. Selfishness, pride, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, a neglect of the true position of God, a blasphemous attempt to make yourself the center of your life where you sit on the throne instead of God. That was Lucifer's ascendancy, which actually led to him being cast down to this earth. Now, this begs a question in many people's minds. Can God be trusted? Yeah, I know the Bible is proven. The prophecies prove that the Bible is inspired. But why didn't he stop Lucifer from carrying out this rebellion in heaven? Why didn't he just annihilate Lucifer the moment he started spreading these lies because he is the father of lies and when he speaks he's speaking lies which is his native language so he's telling lies in heaven he's saying i will be in the position of god all the other stars will follow me he got one third of the angels to follow him as soon as this rumor mill started started up in heaven why didn't god just destroy lucifer at that moment now let's be clear god is all powerful he very well could have cast satan to the ground like a boy throws a pebble to the ground. I mean, this is a created being, right? But he chose not to because, well, think about it this way. God is in heaven on the throne. He's got all the angels loyal to him. And then they had never had a thought about anything questioning God until this Lucifer comes, who's somebody that they trust, somebody that they look up to. And he starts saying, you know what? Did God really say this and that? No, God is holding out on you. God's some sort of tyrant is the lies he's saying in heaven. Who knows exactly what he said, but he spread misinformation about the king in his effort to overthrow the king. So if you follow my rule and my way, it's superior to that of God. So these other angels are listening into this, and the whispering campaign has begun. The polemic, which is the, the Greek word for war, in Revelation 12, the, the argumentation, the disputation has begun. Rebellion has sprouted. And now the angels hear this. Well, Lucifer is saying that God is not who he says he is. They're puzzled. They're listening. They're wondering. They have questions. Now imagine this happened next in the story. It didn't, but think about it hypothetically. Another angel reports. Now you've heard these rumors about what Lucifer is saying about God. Lucifer just turned up dead. That would implant even more doubts. People would wonder, the angels would wonder, what in the world is going on? Think about it this way. Like you've got the president of the United States. He's got a top advisor. And the advisor comes out with a press conference. And he says, ladies and gentlemen of America, the president is not who you think he is. I'm going to hold another press conference tomorrow and tell you a lot more. But basically... Let me spill a couple of the beans right now and I'll get to the rest later. And starts telling a bit about some nefarious activities of the president, whatever they might be. Now pretend that the next morning, right before the conference press conference is supposed to be held, that presidential advisor turns up dead on the banks of the Potomac. Now, of course, everybody in the country is going, okay, well, that sort of maybe validates what he's saying in our minds. And, and people are even more doubtful. God doesn't want, want his intelligent created beings to doubt his goodness at all. He wants his creatures to trust him and love him. So not only would it have looked bad 
But it, it, God's character is one of love and freedom. And so it would be contrary to his character to start ruling heaven with just violence and brute force all over the place. No, he, even though he's sovereign and all-powerful and could and will eventually annihilate evil, he, as amazing as it sounds, the God of heaven is a position, is in a position of literally waging a disputation with Satan, and he's going to prove himself true. He's going to win the undoubting loyalty of every mind. Now, how does he go about doing that? What is God's character like? It says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God is a God of freedom. It says in 1 John 4 verse 8 that God is love. Since God is love, his ultimate goal is, of course, our love, our return of love and obedience, loving obedience that we would render unto him through our intelligent choice because he is worthy. That's what brings him glory. He's not going to rule coercively over his children because he is a God of freedom and a God of love. And by the way, he's a really smart, intelligent, wise being. He had this whole universe in mind and created it with the breath of his mouth and the words of his mouth. So he knows what he's doing. If he would have annihilated evil right there on the spot when Lucifer started rebelling, do you think that would have been the end of rebellion? No, of course, you've got doubts remaining in people's minds, angels' minds. You'd eventually have rebellion on your hands again because everybody's just serving him out of fear. And the service of fear produces the character of a rebel. God wants loving obedience. That is what he is all about. So then Adam and Eve are given opportunity to prove their loyalty to God. Satan is cast to this earth. He's in the tree, the knowledge of good and evil personified as a serpent. And Adam and Eve are also given freedom freedom of choice. God's not going to coerce and force and pressure the worship and obedience of his children. And by the way, in Revelation 13, it's the beast that uses those methods. He uses intimidation. You can't buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast. If you don't worship the beast, there's going to be a death decree. You know, that's Satan's ways. That's not God's ways. If you think about love in the context of human love, it starts to give us just a small glimpse into the incredible nature of God's love. I proposed to my wife in 2002 on November 9. And, you know, when I got down on one knee and I asked her to be my wife, the reason that it was so meaningful to me that she said yes is because she could have said no, right? Because there's freedom there. And she chose to be my wife. That is a blessed experience, right? Now, let's say hypothetically that she starts to hesitate a little bit and I'm asking her to marry me and she's starting to get an anxious look on her face and uh, she's going, well, I don't know, but you know, maybe, uh," and all of a sudden the man proposing to the woman pulls out a weapon, a weapon of choice and says, oh no, don't hesitate. You will marry me. Points a gun at her or whatever. I mean, that is a silly, ridiculous scenario because you can't get love that way. The only way you can get love is by loving. This is how God works too. This is how God operates too. He wants our love, so he will not coerce because if you force, then you annihilate freedom and freedom is the soil in which love grows. By the way, God could have also just programmed robotic minds in the angels and in Adam and Eve and just 
programmed them to robotically carry out his will. You don't want that in a wife either, right? You don't want a Stepford wife to uh, refer to the 1970s theatrical presentation along those lines, not to endorse watching movies, but you understand the cultural theme there of a robotic wife is actually not a good thing. God doesn't want robotic angels. God doesn't want robotic human beings. Love requires freedom. Adam and Eve had choice, and folks, they made a bad choice. They failed the test, just like many of us, by the way, fail when we have freedom of choice as well. Who of us hasn't caused pain to another with our words and deeds? So why is there pain and suffering in the world today? God is not to blame. You were perfect in all your ways till iniquity was found in you, God said about Lucifer. Sin came into this world through the choice of Adam and Eve, and they passed that on to their descendants, including us. We continue to make bad choices. God is not the author of this. He is not to blame for this. In fact, he's the one solving the problem. He says to Eve, one of your descendants, one of your seed, he says, will actually destroy the serpent, crush the head of the serpent. God will step in and end this through Jesus Christ. When we get back from the break, we're going to see why it has taken so long and why we are not yet home in heaven and how we can get there. It's going to be in Matthew 13 in the parable. We'll be right back. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Did you know that heavily rhythmic music, which is basically all popular music today, can actually alter your state of consciousness? Musician William Ora explains, quote, We had discovered something that people knew eons ago, that polyrhythms can be used for hypnotic induction, for altered states of consciousness, even for soul travel. And drummer and percussion scholar Mickey Hart agrees. Everywhere you look around the world, he says, people are using drums to alter consciousness. I have discovered, along with many others, the extraordinary power of music, particularly percussion, to influence the human mind and body. And Jimi Hendrix said, We make our music so loose and hard-hitting that it hits your soul hard enough to make it open. Get informed, folks. Truth is stranger than fiction. Google the words Media on the Brain to learn more. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the soul? Of man. Oh, you rescue the souls of man. And we're back. This is 11th Hour Dispatch. The website is 11thHourDispatch.com. And indeed, we are in the 11th hour of Earth's history. And the exciting thing when you study the prophecies is you know how close we are to that day when all wickedness, all pain, all sorrow, every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no more night. There will be no more sin. We are going to live in the perfect bliss of the presence of Jesus Christ. That's a promise from the Bible. You can take it to the bank. And we're close. We're near that time. But why haven't we arrived already? 
The skeptic says, oh, come on. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, he would have destroyed evil by now. I understand that he gave Adam and Eve freedom, and I understand that he's not responsible for the bad choices that people make. And I understand he couldn't just – well, he could, but I understand that he didn't chose not to destroy Lucifer right on the spot because that would have led to a whole host of problems. And it would have been contrary to his character to just govern heaven with violence and coercive force. I get all that. But the skeptic says, why are we still here? Matthew 13. We read an amazing parable. And Jesus answers this question once and for all. It says in verse 24, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares, weeds, among the wheat, and went away. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst now thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? In other words, uh, you're a good farmer. You sowed good seeds in your field. Why are there so many weeds in the field? Well, we just read, an enemy came and sowed them, planted them, planted the, the, the weed seeds, the tares. And this is exactly what the master says. He says unto them, in answer to their question, where do the weeds come from? Why are there weeds? He says, an enemy hath done this. An enemy hath done this. We're going to come back to all of this. I'm going to finish through the parable, and then Jesus explains what all these things represent, and then we'll understand what this has to do with the last days. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Uh, can we please go and pull the weeds up, sir? But he says, Nay, no. That's a strange answer. We'll come back to that as well. Lest, while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. So no, don't, don't pull up the weeds, because you might pull up the wheat with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the parable. In verse 37, he answers and says unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. So Jesus himself is the one that plants the good seed in the parable, the wheat. Then he says, the field is the world. The good seeds are the children of the kingdom, but the tares, the weeds, are the children of the wicked one. So he's describing a world with both good and evil. Good being the wheat, evil being the weeds. Verse 39, the enemy that sowed them, that sowed the tares, is the devil. So we're clear on what all of these things represent. Jesus sowed good in this world. Satan sowed evil in this world. Then Jesus says, the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who hath ears, let him hear. Jesus, say, Jesus is saying, there will come a day when all the evil 
all the weeds will be pulled up and will be ended. Sin, pain, suffering, evil will be gone. And the wheat will be brought into the barn, into the gardener in heaven will be harvested. This harvest, he says, is the end of the age. So the end of the world. Now, let's understand this from the perspective of the question that's being posed. People ask the question, why is God letting the world with its pain and suffering persist and continue year after year? The answer is right here in the parable. First of all, he doesn't take responsibility for the presence of the weeds. He says an enemy has done this. So when you see a tornado tear through a trailer park and ruin people's lives and take lives, an enemy hath done this. When you see emergency rooms filled with people who are suffering, an enemy hath done this. This is Satan's idea, not God's. When you see starvation and disease and pain and loss, an enemy has done this. But the, the servants ask the obvious question that we are all asking. Can we get on with this and pull up the weeds, please? God's way smarter than us. He says something that puzzles them. He says, no. No. I understand there's weeds and weed in the field. But we're not pulling up the weeds right now. And that's a very confusing thing for us. But he explains it. He says, lest ye tear up the wheat with the weeds. Now, understanding a little bit about their agricultural context will help you think through this a little bit more clearly. In the ancient times, in this agricultural context, they would have had weeds most likely that scientists refer to as the bearded darnel. That's the type of weed that this would have been. And the unique and interesting and notable thing about the bearded darnel is this particular type of weed, when it's small, resembles wheat. The bearded darnel weed plant, when it's small, looks like wheat. And it's hard to determine and, and, and discern the difference. So Jesus is saying... If you pull up the weeds right now, instead of waiting till we get to harvest time, then you're going to end up pulling up some of the wheat with the weeds. In other words, it's not time. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. Why in the world would you let weeds grow? We're asking. Lord, why have you not destroyed evil yet? It continues to grow. He needs it to continue to grow right alongside the wheat. And he's fostering the growth of his wheat and he's cultivating the growth of his wheat. That's you and me. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who are receiving his salvation, he is trying to develop us so that we are ripe for the harvest. And the weeds are also growing in this world. Wickedness and evil abound. You, you can't miss it. It's getting so clear, but it takes some time for every mind to be able to discern the difference. And that's the key. If he comes in and destroys evil too early before the difference between his ways and Satan's ways are fully manifest and fully made known, 
then there are still some minds that are unconvinced. There are still some minds that have not seen the outplaying of both God's ways and Satan's ways and how clear and stark the contrast will be in the last days. It's going to be stark. You see horrible things happening in Revelation 13 and beautiful things happening in Revelation 12 and 14. The, 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 the controversy, this war will come to such a crescendo, such a climactic point that every eye, every observer will be able to say definitively, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, as they sing in Revelation. Since God allows good and evil to both mature, every mind will be convinced of the justice of God when he finally does annihilate evil. Why does every mind have to be convinced? Because, again, think about it. If he destroyed evil too soon, when not everybody has had a chance to really grasp the distinction between righteousness and evil, then doubts remain in people's minds. Doubts remain in angels' minds, humans' minds, whoever. And then sometime in the distant future from now, maybe somebody wondered, was that the right thing for God to do? Maybe doubts start to creep up and rebellion starts to creep in and you have this whole mess over again? God's not going to let it happen. Nahum 1.9 says that iniquity will not arise a second time. Affliction will not arise a second time. We're not going to see another version of this mess that we're in. God's going to bring perfect peace, perfect restoration. There will be no more pain or sorrow or crying, the Bible says. Why will there be no more? Because God is not only all-loving and all-powerful, but he is also all-wise. He knows when it's harvest time. He knows when the time to come in and act definitively in history is going to be. He knows when enough evidence has been provided so that every mind can be convinced and then we won't have to have round two of this war. It's going to be the, this is the war that will end in perfect peace forever for eternity because God is not hasty. Although, you know, we can, you and I can hasten the coming of Jesus. We can hasten the second coming and the end of evil and sin. Now, that's an amazing thing that, that Peter says. In the New Testament, we read that we can hasten the coming of Christ by our good deeds, by our living for Jesus. Because when the wheat is matured, and God is racing to mature us, because he can come and claim us as his own once it is evident that we are the wheat. And so in a way, we contribute to the final destruction of evil and pain and suffering. Romans 6, verse 16, verse 20 actually says that the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. And that's puzzling. Like, how, how in the world does he crush Satan in the end under our feet? I mean, we're just, we're just human beings. He's using us. He's working in us to demonstrate his goodness in a powerful way. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 says that we are a spectacle to angels and to men. 1 Peter 1, verse 12 says that angels desired to look into these things. 
So the onlooking universe and every human being is witnessing the outplaying of the controversy between good and evil. And we are that spectacle. We are being watched so that once the harvest has finally come, maturity has finally been reached for the weeds and the wheat, then God will know that it is time to harvest, time to bring us to heaven, and time to finally end evil. And he's all wise. He knew, he knew that if he would prematurely end these things before sufficient evidence was provided to convince every mind that we could see a second rising of rebellion. But we will not, because God is going to end this as quickly as he can. And that's why it's lasted so long, because this growth season is still happening. So grow, my friend. Grow in the Lord. See you next time. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. Bertrand Russell says we're going to use methods like the Jesuits use. Now that was what he said about the education system. He goes on with an even more important statement. He says perhaps the most important of all modern agents of propaganda is the cinema. It leads to almost worldwide uniformity. The great majority of young people in almost all civilized countries derive their ideas of love, of honor, of the way to make money, and the importance of good clothes from the evening spent in seeing what Hollywood thinks is good for them. They want us in constant amusement. This dates all the way back to the Roman Empire. You remember bread and circuses. Keep the people entertained. Keep the people fed, and they will be tamed. That's how we can keep control over the population. Amusement. Joseph Stalin knew the power of Hollywood. He said, if I could have control over that, the whole world would be communist. Brought to you by BeltofTruthMinistries.org.